This is episode number 402 with Tyler Handley of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth, Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode. The tattoo industry is an $8 billion global market without a single recognizable consumer brand. Now, today's guest is looking to change that with the semi-permanent tattoo brand Inkbox. Now, Tyler Handley started a $5 million a month movement. And Tyler is speaking to us right after a $65 million acquisition from stationary powerhouse BIC. So if you're ready to hear what it takes to scale your business in a very unique niche, then this one is for you, especially if you have an e-commerce business or want to start one. Please welcome to the podcast, Tyler Handley. So Tyler, welcome. Really excited to speak with you today. The uh, first question we ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? Oh, yeah. Well, I never had a career job before founding Inkbox. Uh, you know, I've worked a lot of odd jobs, landscaper, bathroom, uh, sorry, bathroom um, janitor, where I cleaned a lot of bathrooms, uh, groundskeeper at a golf course, just a bunch of random work. And uh, just out of school, um, I was looking at getting a tattoo and the design I wanted was not the type of tattoo I knew I'd want in 10 years. Uh, and at the time, you know, I was just doing some freelance work and I'd really had nothing to lose. So I figured why not start my own company and bring this product to market that I wanted that no one was doing. Yeah. Wow. And how long ago was that? I was back in, the idea was in 2015, officially launched like kind of later that year, the end of 2000. Uh, 15. So about seven years now. Yep. About seven years. And fast forward to now, um, and please correct me if these numbers are correct. You, you guys are doing around uh, four to $5 million a month selling. A little bit, a little bit less than that, but yeah, we did just, just shy of $30 million uh, last year in revenue. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And tell me how like it all got started. Like what was that experience like? Um, just even working out how to create these tattoos? 
Yeah. Well, that's kind of a funny story, actually. Uh, so when my brother and I started the business, we had, uh, you know, he, he went to school for entrepreneurship. So he uh, always wanted to start a business and he was very entrepreneurial minded. Uh, me, I was uh, not, not really the same, very, very driven person. Um, kind of just wanted to, I love solving problems and figuring things out. I should have been an engineer, but uh, that's just not the path I chose uh, in schooling, which I, I do regret. So yeah, when we had this idea, uh, essentially, uh, we took $10,000 from a friend. Uh, we had no friends with any money, but he inherited some money from his uncle, essentially. So he gave us 10K, said, I believe in you guys, like, go figure this out. So the, the, you know, the way our product works is essentially it, it gives you a tattoo that lasts one to two weeks, very different than the temporary tattoos you had as a kid. Um, I found that found is, is kind of a, uh, a misnomer. I would, I would say just more came across in research, this, uh, this extract that comes from a fruit that grows in Central America. Um, and in that in that extract is the ability to actually dye the skin to look like a tattoo. Um, it's not the only part of doing so, but it's kind of like the main mechanism in our product. And so my brother and I uh, were like, let's, you know, I have this idea for a tattoo that lasts one to two weeks. That's way cooler than a temporary tattoo that you get as a kid um, that you can actually feel cool and confident wearing it as an adult. Like, do you want to do this with me? And he's like, yeah, like, let's figure it out. So we actually flew down to Panama um, and spent some time with um, some tribes there who use this fruit in ceremonial practices, very different than like what you'd consider a tattoo. It's it's just like they they paint these certain patterns um, with these sticks of balsa wood. It's, it's really cool. We got some art done on us and stuff and um, started importing this raw fruit extract. And we were just in our apartment mixing this formula we concocted like witches with this, uh, this fruit extract. Um, and uh, it stains everything. So our hands were blue. The table in his apartment was we're pr pretty sure we've permanently ruined that apartment because <laughs> anything you touched, your hands would turn blue um, from this uh, from this ink. So <clears throat> we were just mixing in his apartment and then we'd have to like take it, put it into a bottle, put another bottle, refrigerate it, label it, and then eventually actually freeze it before shipping. Um, it was just like classic kind of instead of you know, Toronto, we don't have garages downtown. We have apartments that, you know, every, everything's in your apartment. So uh, fit out of the company, out of the apartment. And the initial product we had was very messy. Like you can imagine it was just a bottle of this kind of like gel. Um, and you would take a, a stencil that had negative space and it put on your skin and you'd fill in the negative space with this gel. Uh, but it was just really messy. You had to leave it to dry for a few hours. You had to refrigerate and freeze the product. It just wasn't consumer friendly or scalable. And also we couldn't control what was really in it necessarily because it was so raw. Uh, we wanted something that had more shelf life and stability and we could control um, for, just for regulatory purposes, right? So um, we're like, okay, <laughs> how could we apply this in a different way? That That's a lot easier. Um, and basically just we found a way to extract this, this raw, this raw, this molecule essentially from this, this raw fruit. Um, and from there, uh, we got lab space at a local university, uh, just contracted a, a chemist, just literally went on indeed and just did a job posting. Cause I didn't know anyone in the sciences at the time. Um, and, uh, found someone who was just in between his, his, uh, his, I think it was his master's and his, and his, his doctoral uh, degree, um, in organic chemistry and, he was like, yeah, like I'll do a quick contract. So I, I gave him um, a month. I was like, tell me everything you can about this, 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 this molecule we've, we found. Like, do, is there any published research about it? Like, what do we know? And there was like almost nothing. Um, 
but he had some ideas for how to actually maybe put this into a product. So we got some lab space at a university uh, just for free because my brother was an alumni there in the off season. So in the summer where there weren't students and we would just go to the lab like every day in the summer and it was fun. I felt like a scientist. Like I am someone who reads a lot of like a lot of like science journals and stuff. So I'm, I'm pretty like well-versed, but I'm not a scientist by training, but it was really fun to like carry out the, the, the obviously the scientific method, the research method, methodologies to um, just try all these different ways of, um, you know, concentrations of mixing this, this molecule. What do you mix it with? Um, what's, what's, what's the buffer agent? Like, how do you then put that into a product that the consumer can apply? And that was the, the, the biggest challenge was like, you're not, we weren't creating just like a, product, but like how do customers use the product, the product design behind it? I think we actually kind of fucked that part up uh, on, the, on the first iteration of the product. So um, basically we had this, after months of testing, we weren't getting any color even on our skin, like it wasn't working. Um, and then I eventually figured out that actually heat and water were the catalyst in this reaction. Um, so we devised a method of applying the tattoo where we would take this formula we developed, put it in like this dry pad. We were actually using, no joke, we were using pads at the start, like pads. We would go to the, 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 like the local drugstore and then just buy pads, bring them back. Um, and then we eventually moved to like little makeup pads. Um, and we would just dip our formula, um, dip this in our formula, dry it out, and then eventually stick it over top of a stencil, press it down with heat and water and, it would kind of go through that stencil and, and create a design. Uh, it wasn't perfect, but it was good enough to launch. So uh, it was at that time we decided to do a Kickstarter. Um, you know, when you have no access to capital or don't really know anyone who has the money, I didn't know any investors, um, neither did my brother. So just like, let's do a Kickstarter. <laughs> so we put our, we had $5,000 left, we put the 5,000 into the Kickstarter campaign, mostly just for the video, honestly. Um, and about $2,000 we self-funded it with. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, we just did this Kickstarter campaign, um, hustled to get it out there. I mean, we did all of our own PR. We literally printed off or took out about $2,000, uh, in cash and walked around the startup accelerator we were at and just handed people like $20 bills. We're like, go fund the campaign. Here's $20, here's $20. Um, and yeah, we got it up to our target within a week of 40,000. And then I think over the course of four weeks, we hit about 275 K, um, which, Oh, so 7,700 backers, which was enough to prove that there was demand for this product. And at that point, um, I started getting some connections to some investors and we raised some money. Oh, awesome. And how much did you raise? Uh, that first round was about one point. Uh, well, it was a pre-seed and a seed. So it was all total over the course of about four months. It was about uh, $1.2 million. Got it. So can you talk to us about the dynamic of working with your brother? Um, who's your yeah. co-founder, uh, Brayden. Like, what's that like? Uh, yeah, so uh, it's pretty easy for us, honestly. We got that question a lot when we started. Investors were concerned, I would say. Um, you know, first-time entrepreneurs working with your brother, they were like, oh, God, like, we've seen this family dynamic before. It doesn't always work. Uh, but, you know, I think with Brayden and I, it's been pretty easy, to be honest. Um, we know each other quite well. We're only three years apart. We have a lot of the same interests. Um and, but we have different skills. So, you know, he's, he has, a, I'd say a higher emotional quotient than me and is, is better with, with people. I'm a little bit more cerebral um, and a little bit more like high level strategic, if that makes sense. Um, so we were, it was very easy and obvious as to how we split our roles and we like never overstepped 
which was good. And we, I think one of the key things we did too was split everything down the middle. So ownership split down the middle, salaries split down the middle, like everything was even. So there was no chance of there ever being any sort of like beef between us in that respect. Um, oh yeah, it's been pretty easy. I don't know what else to say. Awesome. So um, before we dive into it, you guys were acquired by BIC for 65 yeah. million. Um, can you talk about like that scaling journey of, of what led to that and, and how that all came about? Yeah. So uh, how it came about uh, with BIC was, uh, I mean, pretty interesting. It was something that I think probably on first view, when you first see it, you go, hmm, uh, you think about it a bit more, it starts to make more sense. And that was my initial reaction. The CEO reached out to me about a year and a half ago um, and just wanted to chat. And we started chatting. And I was quite hesitant, I have to admit, uh, to chat to him for the first time because you know, they have a product that competes with ours in market called the Body Mark. It's a temporary tattoo marker that is more like a typical temporary tattoo that you had as a kid. It's like one to three days, whereas ours are one to two weeks and a lot more realistic looking. And I thought he was maybe feigning interest to you know, steal some secrets or you know, get some insider scoop on how we're doing things. Because um, it was our opinion that our product was superior. And um, I mean, we're, we were able to build a brand, like a really cool brand. Um, and, and BIC is, uh, you know, like a, a large ubiquitous company who has a strong brand, but it's very different. We're a modern direct-to-consumer brand. They're obviously um, from, a, from a different age in that respect. So anyway, so we started having conversations and I uh, was really taken aback by how, can't, like, by how honest he was. Um, he showed a lot of candor and nice guy shared the same vision for the market as us too. Um, so we had a, like a really good rapport uh, really quickly, which was, which was awesome. Um, and then we just kind of chatted uh, on and off for about a year. Uh, you know, we were, uh, we were venture backed. So we have a board, uh, we have you know, shareholders and I spent a lot of time with them externally talking about the business and whatnot. But uh, over time, it, you know, I started to talk to him a little bit more, a little bit more. Didn't give him too many details, of course, because, you know, I don't, I don't owe them anything. And uh, it was more of relationship building, just enough to keep that relationship going. Um, and, and, and he would share things with me. And about uh, a year into those conversations, he let me know he was interested in potentially acquiring us. Uh, and uh, I started talking to more members of their team mostly C-suite people initially, and then people from all over the organization to get a feel uh, for, you know, what they were like. Uh, did they all share the same vision? You know, it was very much them doing diligence on me and me doing diligence on them at the same time. Um, and it was, it went really well. I got to say, I think everyone was always impressed um, on, on in going both ways. A uh, lot of good conversations. Uh, there was an excitement and energy around the business that uh, was very palpable. Um, they're this, you know, big, huge market share publicly traded company who uh, is building out new verticals for growth uh, going forward. And they have a, like a younger group of, uh, of team members there now who are energized by that vision of, of driving change in this, this historic and extremely successful company. Uh, and we bought into that vision too, and it got us really excited. So then it kicked off negotiations. And then, you know, from there uh, that that's, month or two months, what have you. And then there's obviously a very deep diligence process because it's a public traded company. Uh, and then, yeah, you sign and you close. Yeah. Well, there you go. So um, can you talk to us kind of around, you have this sort of crazy idea and you're up and running 
Um, how do you get traction? It's always the, first, the hardest part, right? Is how do you get that first? It's like rolling a snowball down a hill, right? Like you got to start with something. How do you, you got to get it started somehow. If you can't, nothing's going to start rolling, right? So oh, for us, <laughs> I mean, the first year was really slow. Uh, we just had an Instagram presence with a couple thousand followers and it was the odd sale here and there couple thousand dollars a day, max, you know, nothing crazy. And then it really, I mean, Facebook was the initial driver. It was oh, Instagram more so, but through the Facebook ecosystem, um, you know, Facebook ads at the time were, you know, a lot more affordable than they are now. It's almost extortive at this point. Um, but you know, they were more affordable and we were just scaling through those channels. We got a, an account manager there who was helpful in the beginning. Um, that's how we found a lot of our initial growth. Um, I would say it was that and then influencer strategy through Instagram. Instagram was really our main channel. Uh, I would say PR helped in the early, like the early, the first year or two as well, just to get the word out there and build that, like um, that trustworthiness. Like once you get picked up in a certain amount of news articles, you can say as seen on, on your site and it, you know, builds that trust. Um, and then off the back of that, I mean, word of mouth builds up over time. So that helps. Um, and more recently we've obviously expanded, uh, into a slew of different channels, but really finding that one core channel initially and then really honing in on it and just making that one channel work and not spreading yourself too thin, I think is really important. I suppose, um, as well, you had a little bit of a lift off from the Kickstarter. So the Kickstarter was like kind of your first kind of gives that lift. Yeah. I mean, it's it, the name is on the tin, like it kickstarts your business. Right. So it worked. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And like, if you go to your site now, there's literally something for everybody. Um, what did the f- initial offering look like? A- and did you always have customization? So no, we did not always have customization. The initial designs on our site were very simplistic. Um, the initial product we sold had to be stencilized, which means, um, you know, as, uh, everyone thinks they know what a stencil is, but like to actually define it, um, it's, you know, a design that has bridges in it essentially. So that if you were to peel it off a piece of paper, the whole thing would come off at once and there wouldn't be little parts, right? Um, that's how the designs were. So they had to be really simple um, and kind of cut up. So if we were trying to do, uh, you know, a logo of, of like a sports team and the logo was a circle, like that circle would need a, like a bridge in it, a line to connect the middle to the outside, right? So you could peel it off. So the, the initial designs were just super simple, a lot of geometric stuff. Um, but uh, we launched the newer version of our product about three years ago. Um, and that enabled us to do pretty much anything from a design perspective and shading as well, which we couldn't do before. Um, so when that happened, we did a big push around really building out our artist community. You know, one of the core parts of our business is the fact that our 10,000 plus designs are designed by, I think about 650 or so different uh, artists, many of whom are really, really talented tattoo artists from around the world. Um, collectively, I think they earned around just $1.5 million last year, which was really cool for us to see. And I mean, they come from all walks of life and all backgrounds. So like you said, there's tons of designs for everyone on site now. Um, I would say that the kind of the core designs that sell really well are stuff that is very, um, I would say like the, the, the mix between the delicate, the floral stuff is really popular, stuff that it's like really pretty and beautifying and stuff that is really irreverent has been selling really well as well lately. So a frog riding a skateboard. Or a duck with a knife, like just really weird, like um, it's called um, 
I would say irreverent is the right word to describe it, but weird is also a good word, but weird in a good way. Uh, those designs have been selling. Um, the custom platform we have on site is about 15 to 20% of our volume. And tattoos are a personal item. It's why we have so many designs on our platform. Uh, people have very specific tastes um, and demands for what they put on their body for one to two weeks. And so custom was just a natural extension. So we built our own custom uh, web platform uh, where you can either upload a design yourself uh, or design one from scratch from using our fonts, um, our catalog of designs, uh, things like that. So that's, yeah, it's been popular and we see some hilarious, amazing stuff uh, through the custom platform. That's awesome. And, you know, like right now, more people search for ink box uh, than the term like temporary tattoos. Like how, how did you nail that positioning? Like how, how long did that take? I think that took about four years um, to, to overtake the search terms for temporary tattoos. I think it's just a volume thing. I mean, temporary tattoos, everyone knows what they are. They've been around since the seventies, but there's never been a brand who's really owned the term um, and really made them kind of cool for people who aren't kids. <laughs> and so, I mean, kids aren't searching Google. I mean, parents will, but they're so easy to buy in like any kind of, I mean, like a Walmart or just your corner store or like a Michael's or something, they're kind of everywhere. Um, so I, I just imagine there's just not a lot of D to C for temporary tattoos. Um, there, there, there are companies of course, but the, the volume of it really comes from, from retail. So I just don't think there was that search volume. And, and frankly, when you're running ads and you're working with influencers and your brand gets out there, uh, it's on people's tongue, right? So, you know, a lot of people, when they see an ad, don't click on the ad, they'll search, they'll Google you, right? And I think that's, you can actually probably track the rise in our ad spend with the, the rise in our organic um, search volume or, or aid in search volume. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success. You should come and check out our new podcast, From Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in-the-trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. The thing that really kicked in you guys into gear when it comes to scaling was was really paid advertising, you would say? I would say paid advertising with influencer and word of mouth kind of layered in. Yep. And you're able to share kind of uh, how much you guys were spending. Is it, you know, over six, multiple six figures a month, seven figures a month? Uh, like, uh, I would say like less than a million a month, but more than 600,000. Yep. Okay. And when it comes to kind of, I guess, was it only Facebook ads? Was it YouTube ads? Was it, uh, you know, AdWords? Like, was it mainly Facebook ads and Instagram? Yeah, AdWords wasn't ever really a huge driver for us because 
obviously, as we've been talking about, more people were searching for us than temporary tattoos. So there wasn't a ton of volume there. Um, you know, for, for, for us more, more recently, as Facebook has become extremely expensive, uh, just like a lot of other DTC companies, we've been moving more into TikTok, YouTube, um, very soon getting into connected TV, um, streaming um, out of home. Uh, more top of funnel brand awareness, uh, which is more expensive um, and uh, a bit more of a challenge. But I think when you scale as a company that you kind of reach a stage where you have to think more funnel holistic and not just like mid funnel. I think a lot of companies get trapped in just, and you know, frankly, we've been in this position where you get trapped in just spending into the middle of the marketing funnel, um, but you're not driving enough awareness, which doesn't compress that cost. So the, the mid funnel always remains pretty expensive. Um, but you know, more recently we've been really putting more into that top to build that brand awareness, to put the name on people's tongues. So when they do see that, that ad, that's more middle funnel for them. Um, they're a lot more likely to click and a lot more likely to convert because they've seen it before. Yeah. Interesting. So what is the middle of funnel for, for people that aren't aware? So top of funnel stuff you can think of as being very brand awareness based. So, uh, you know, TV ads would be a good example of that, a billboard, um, that's very hard. It's harder to track. Let's put it that way. Uh, the, the impact, uh, whereas, you know, mid funnel is what you typically would call like performance marketing. You know, it's a lot closer to transaction, um, in the sense that, you know, someone's seeing an ad, they're clicking your ad, they're going to your site. Right. And then hopefully they're converting on first visit, which isn't usually the case, but it's very soon after that. Typically now you have their data. Now you retarget them. Right. So, the challenges lately, and then obviously low, as you go lower in the funnel, that's more your on-site merchandising, um, you know, how you're presenting your products to, to consumers, um, how your site functions, your browse, your nav, all that kind of stuff, right? So um, yeah, we've been moving to more up the funnel more where we historically focused very bottom mid funnel. And you find that top of funnel, like you said, brand awareness is more expensive, but over time you're seeing that is paying returns? Yeah, so historically it's more expensive, um, but if you, you have to track it uh, not on, you gotta track it holistically um, with your in, your entire marketing spend. Um, and you know, we make good use of like post-purchase surveys on site, right? Uh, after you purchase to, to understand where you heard about us, which is a very classic technique, but it really helps plug that gap where you don't have that data on um, a lot of the top of funnel stuff. Um, so yeah, it's expensive, but as if you can track it well, um, you do see its impact on the rest of the funnel. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, when it comes to collaborations, you guys have done some really incredible work there. Um, can you tell us how that's impacted the business? Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. So we've done a couple collabs, uh, you know, I'll, I'll name a couple of them. So one is with, uh, the world's best-selling poet, Ruby Kaur. Uh, she actually just surpassed Homer, who wrote the Odyssey and the Iliad as the number one best-selling poet of all time, which is kind of crazy um, to, to think about. Um, so she's obviously wildly popular. Uh, BTS, obviously wildly popular as a band. Um, that wasn't, a, it was a collab, but it wasn't a, a deep collab in the sense that they were like posting about us and like promoting us, whereas Ruby Core was. So those are very two different types of collabs. We've done a lot of collabs with other poets like Atticus, for example, who's done very well for us as well. Uh, we did a Post Malone deal, which is a lot more similar to the BTS one as well. Um, obviously, collaborating with celebrities can be very expensive. Um, these are kind of like mixed marketing kind of royalty deals. 
So um, you get to use their likeness and, 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 and their kind of their assets and stuff and, 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 and promote it as, as a collaboration, but they're not like doing the, the outreach themselves to give us that extra reach. That's where a lot of the impact actually comes. So on the BTS and the Post Malone ones for us, they're, I mean, they did really well. They drove a lot of money, but like they were more beneficial from a brand standpoint because they opened other doors. Um, I think it builds credibility for us as well in the consumer's mind. Um, and the, the deals that are with the poets, for example, when they're actually promoting to their audiences who are, you know, they're, 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 they're avid fans. They, 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 they eat up the merch that they put out there. Right. And those ones have actually done better than the, the other ones because of that extra reach from the, 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 the influencer or the celebrity themselves. So and going forward, we're obviously more, more, more keen to, to work with partners who are actually going to be promoting and uh, really putting us out there to their fans. Yeah, that's awesome. Look, not enough people speak about partnerships, but um, they can be game-changing for growth and for, for business development, like for, for really growing a business. If you, if you just line up a few of those with the right partner, you can do some incredible things. Yeah. You know, I've seen that happen with other companies. Um, you know, for us, it added, I mean, pretty significant impact, but I wouldn't say it was, they were game changers. Um, you know, they, but they were like pretty big revenue drivers, but not to the extent that it was like a, a material change in the future outlook of the business, you know? Yeah. Got you. So, um, what's been the most challenging part of your journey? Whoa, that's a big question. Uh, <laughs> uh, many. Uh, let's see. Um, initially, just figuring out how to develop the damn products. Initially, um, not. Really, I think figuring things out in the early days, um, not ha- having run a business before, literally not knowing what a financial statement looked like, <laughs> and, and just like learning on the fly uh, as you went. Like that was always a challenge because there was so much uncertainty. But at the same time. Uh, you have like a willful ignorance, like not a willful ignorance, like a, a blissful ignorance or naivete uh, that that blinds you from the challenges ahead, uh, which makes it easier as an entrepreneur to just kind of put your head down and drive forward. Uh, retrospectively now, I'm like, wow, I, I knew so little. <laughs> How did I get here? Um, and a, a lot of that's got to be luck too, right? And just effort. So the initial challenge was just figuring everything out, honestly. Um, you know, in the past year or two, it's been navigating COVID supply chain. I'd say just generally speaking, the uncertainty in the world, one of the hardest things for a company like us to do right now is forecast. <laughs> We're not fortune tellers. And when you're in an uncertain world, for, uh, forecasting for a business that um, is, is new and growing is, is really challenging. Um, so that's, that's been on my mind a lot the past six to eight months. Yeah, I see. And when it comes to kind of now you guys uh, have been acquired, what does the next five years look like being box? Yeah, it's exciting. Um, we're really excited about the next uh, three to five years. You know, um, we have fresh capital to go after the vision that we put out, put out there with BIC. Uh, we have their resources that will help us scale specifically internationally. Um, one of the unique things about our product is that a, it's cheap and light to ship uh, pretty much in an envelope. Uh, it is a product that has no natural competitions in other markets and tattoos are actually a global language. Um, so the designs we sell in Germany are very much the same designs that sell well in North America, very little difference actually, which would kind of surprise us initially. So, uh, one of our big focuses now is really taking the business international 
and just going after Western Europe initially, Australia as well, Mexico, then Brazil, Latin America, uh, and then other countries uh, in the near future. So BIC is going to have a lot of uh, a lot on their hands with us to, to help us with that from a regulatory perspective, from uh, an inventory and supply chain perspective. But I mean, that's what they do. Uh, so we're really excited to have their support there. And um, what else would I say is going to be awesome with them? I, and the R&D component, developing new products, bringing new products to market. One thing that you probably don't see about our company is that we have a pretty significant R&D team internally. Uh, our product feels simple, but there's a lot of really like fine technology involved in it, for chemistry, sorry, uh, technology on the manufacturing side of it. It's a very uh, precise um, manufacturing method uh, and, and just in terms of product creation, just the precision required is a lot more than you'd expect. And so to develop colors, for example, has been um, a very challenging uh, task, uh, but we have, them in the, we have them in the works now and the progress is strong and they're going to help us scale it up and, and, and get to colors faster, which is exciting. For those who don't know, our tattoos are only one color right now. Um, and actually changing this color, because we actually change the color of your skin. So you can imagine we can't just use off the shelf dyes because we're changing your skin's color, not putting a color on it. Uh, so to actually form a chemical reaction in your skin to create a new color is, is, is a, it's a challenge, um, an exciting scientific challenge uh, that we're going to have more funding and resources to go after now. Yeah, that's awesome. That's really interesting because um, when you look from the outside perspective at a, you know, quite often an e-commerce D2C brand, you'd think they'd be mainly heavily marketing, um, like like in terms of the team and a little bit product, but once you've got the product or suite of products and then you add those products on, you, you know, you have some things on logistics, but for the most part, it's, it's really marketing heavy team. So you're finding that the more investment that you guys make in R&D and product development that will help you guys um, further oh, delight yeah. your customers, grow faster in turn? For sure. We're, we're a product that's, we're a company that's been driven by product development. Now, we've been through about three iterations on our, our core product and they've changed, it's changed quite drastically to make it much more effective, much simpler. Um, and, you know, that, that comes at a, at a cost. Uh, and, and, and effort and time from a research and development perspective, but it also what's, it's what gives us competitive advantage in a competitive mode. Uh, and it's probably one of the reasons, honestly, we were acquired is because we do have IP. Uh, you know, we do have trade secret manufacturing knowledge. We have stuff that people can't readily and easily copy. And I think that's been a challenge in the, I advise some other startups and I'm very involved in the DDC space here in Toronto and at New York and LA and, there's a lot of concern right now in this space because it's because it's never been easier to start a to start a business uh, with Shopify, the Shopify app ecosystem. Uh, there's so many tools out there that make it so easy to get a, a, a store up and running, for example. Um, but the, the flip side to that is there's a lot more competition out there too. And when the ad costs go up, and that's your main channel of of, of you know getting in front of customers, uh, you're kind of left holding the bag. That you don't really have a lot of competitive differentiation. Um, there's a lot of the same kind of brand feeling in market, a lot of the same Shopify templates. So it kind of confuses customers and kind of maybe devalues the product as well. So it's kind of like twofold. And so for us, uh, the, the, 
staying in front of any potential competitors through product development has helped us really just stay ahead um, and, and be like a unique in a unique position in our category that helps us on our marketing because we have a unique value proposition because we are targeting a unique audience. Uh, and that's kind of helped us in every marketing channel beyond that even. So, yeah, no, that's um, really, really great insights. And you said that you advise a lot of um, D to C brands and you, you know, across uh, North America, I'm curious, like what it, what are some other common mistakes that you see early stage uh, e-com founders make? A lot of the the people I know um, or that I, I speak to more regularly, um, that I try to give like a helping hand to are, are a lot newer, right? And and this is just isn't D2C, but more broadly speaking, like if you don't, if you don't come from the industry, you know, you don't know. You kind of don't know a lot of the details, like you, you kind of, you don't know who to sell into at, at a company. If you're doing SaaS, for example, D2C, you don't know how the digital marketing works. So you, you don't know who to hire first. Like hiring is always a challenge. Like who do I hire first? Who do I, like, who was your first hire? And it's honestly, it's different for every company. Uh, so it's a really hard thing to answer. Um, so I'd say it's just that inexperience and, and not knowing what steps to take to dig it to the next stage is like the thing I see most people struggle with. Um, and it's a really hard thing to like advise or coach around if it's not in a very known product category or something that like has been done before. The flip side of that is like the naivete often means that like you might be going after something no one has seen before, um, which could beget more scale as well, right? So it's not necessarily a bad thing, but that's what I see companies struggle with. And I don't think it's a mistake. It's just like, it's a learning experience and just getting yourself off the ground. I think another, a mistake I do see sometimes is companies, it's sometimes a mistake, but sometimes the right decision is, is companies pivoting into think what they think will make money and not what they think will serve customers. You know, um, just really blinding themselves to the easy money and not the hard work of acquiring and retaining consumers. That is something I've, I've definitely seen before. And I mean, it's enticing to just focus on like, Hey, like I can make money. I could just make money this way if I do this, but it might hurt the long-term value of everything, but it's like, they're not to do it. Let's go for it. Um, where the longer, harder route, uh, might've had a long-term gain that was higher. Um, but they didn't take that path. Um, and that kind of sometimes ties into, um, I don't know. I think a lot of companies, one more thing is, sorry, <laughs> it's kind of going off here. It's kind of a big question. Um, one other thing, I, I, a lot of the companies that are most successful that I've seen in the DTC space are companies that are founded by someone who wants the product that they developed or that they're selling. Um, that's the case with Inkbox, of course. Uh, but you just think of a lot of like, I think I, I see this with a lot of like female-led DTC companies too, where they, they they have such a knowledge of like their own customer because they are their customer that it's 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 just second nature to develop. To, de to develop the product, to market that product to these consumers, because what would I think, you know? Um, and I think that's kind of a superpower uh, for, for DTC founders. Yeah, no, awesome. Um, one last thing before we work towards wrapping up is you talked about the easy route versus maybe the long-term play around building long-term customer loyalty and building long-term relationships with customers. 
How have you made that choice and what do you actually do to build for the long term versus the short term? I mean, the choice isn't black or white. I think there's a gray area in between and depending on the context, uh, situational context where you're at as a business at the time, like sometimes you do focus on some of that cheaper growth. Uh, a, cheap, a cheap example of growth, at least a couple of years ago, was just really relying heavily on new customers from Facebook to drive top line growth without focusing on uh, returning customers and, and retaining those customers. Um, you know, for us, from a retention perspective, really good customer service has been really important to us. You go read our reviews on Trustpilot. Like so many people mention our CS team. We have a really high CSAT score. Uh, CSAT is customer satisfaction score. Uh, and that's important because, uh, you know, it's a product that is new to consumers and there is uh, not really much of a learning curve, but you can make mistakes when you apply it. So, uh, and just with shipping and stuff, like there's always shipping issues, no matter where you're shipping to and customers want answers. You know, they're accustomed now to instant delivery, instant response from Amazon essentially, right? So they expect that of everyone. Uh, and if you can give them that service, uh, they'll, they'll reward you. So customer service has been absolutely essential for us. And just getting email flows tr triggered right, I mean, is really important. If you're on Shopify, just use something like Klaviyo. They have a lot of pre-built flows. Uh, if you don't know what you're doing, it's a pretty good way to get started on a post-purchase journey for customers. Uh, just getting them back in the door uh, with a drip campaign. You know, 12 emails over the course of a couple of months, three or four months, um, you know, with, you know, maybe... Uh, you know, increasing offers uh, as the emails get further and further out and they don't open them to entice them to come back. Uh, there's only so much you can do with getting sales in front of people to get them to come back. Uh, you know, the product kind of speaks to itself sometimes there, but uh, it's, if you're not doing it, you kind of have to, because it's low hanging fruit. Yeah. Awesome. I agree. Um, okay. So look, uh, we're going to move to the rapid fire round. Um, we've got oh, shit. Three, three <laughs> questions for you. Um, just, uh, yeah, kind of maximum 60 second answers. So what's been your favorite tattoo creation from one of your customers? Oh, that one's so easy. Okay. Uh, it's called Chody. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a little penis, uh, but it's so cute. It's like the cutest. I want it to be like a cartoon character and like have a whole TV show and movie franchise around it because it's so cute. <laughs> Awesome. Definitely. It's like, it's like this big. It's so cute. <laughs> awesome. Uh, what's been, what, what's one piece of advice you would give to early stage founders uh, looking for a successful acquisition? Be really clear on your vision and have a vision, have a big vision. If someone's acquiring you, it's because for the most case in consumer, it's because they think you have a brand and a product that can scale and be big right? So focus on what that scale looks like. How does this product and brand become huge? And then just set your sights on that five to 10 year vision down the line and sell that. Last question. If you could have dinner with one entrepreneur dead or alive, who would it be and why? Can I, can I take a, a slightly, I guess like take a slightly different view on this. Um, I would say someone like Winston Churchill, not an entrepreneur, but showed a lot of entrepreneurial like vision and I would say leadership in how he took a country that was on the brink of surrendering or collapse and a cabinet who was stacked against him, who didn't like a board, it was almost like a board pretty much stacked against him and who didn't, who wanted to surrender, who wanted to make peace with Hitler. Um, 
but he, he, he had a vision. He had a vision of what it could be, of how they could win. And he stood firm to it through leadership, convinced an entire nation to stand firm with him and won the war. I mean, that's crazy leadership. And I take a lot of inspiration from historical people like that, who through uncertainty um, had clarity of vision and the leadership to make that vision a reality. Yeah. Amazing. Love it. Well, look, thank you so much for your time, Tyler. This has been an awesome interview. You've been so open and honest and uh, we'll wrap there. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.